0: Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology, and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 109. Chelsea Football Club itself spent more money than the Spanish, French, Italian, and German
1: leagues put together. My name is Debesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. Today, in the context of trade finance, working capital and transactions, we're talking about football. It's not every day when you get to talk about sports in the world of trade. But in essence, when you think about the components of asset-backed financing and project finance, receivables and simple working capital management, many elements of running the finances of a football club or league touch the trade finance world. So to bring trade and receivables finance to life, I am delighted to be joined by the University of Liverpool's football finance lecturer, Kieran Maguire, also the author of The Price of Football. Kieran, welcome to Trade Finance Talks. Thanks very much. This should be fun. It makes a pleasant change from having to talk about football from other
0: perspectives, which I sometimes get lumbered with and which I'm not very confident about.
1: To start off with, can you give a quick elevator pitch? Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? And also, what team do you support?
0: I teach at the University of Liverpool. I teach on our football industries MBA, as well as the regular MBA course. And I specialize in football finance, which some people will say is not a proper subject. But given the expansion of the industry revenues in the Premier League, for example, have increased by 2,600% since 1992. So we are talking about a multi-billion pound-a-year business. It has become more of an issue. We're seeing diverse ownership models, which don't necessarily complement each other, which makes for an interesting analysis. We've got profit maximization versus other KPI maximization entities. And right or wrongly, I seem to have landed square in this. We're recording this at what, two o'clock on a Monday afternoon. I've already had six media interviews today about some things, which I can't even remember what they are anyway. It's all a little bit of a blur. That's a bigger subject that it deserves to be. That reflects the all-encompassing nature of football. And as for football itself, I'm a diehard brighton Nova Albion fan. I've been going there for over 50 years. So even though I've spent my whole working life in Manchester and Liverpool, I've got a season ticket at Brighton.
1: Can you talk us through some of the principles of football club finance then, Karen? And why is cash flow management, treasury and working capital, such a key factor in the success of the beautiful game. The main issues in terms of of football and finance is volatility and
0: unpredictability. Football clubs get their revenues from three main sources. Broadcasting rights, which uh, normally pay three or four times a year. So therefore, you've got uh, erratic cash inflows, uh, ticket sales. And if you're looking at a Premier League club, we've got some individual clubs that have got forty or 50,000 season ticket holders, who again, tend to pay at around about the same time. And commercial income, where you will have signed front of shirt sponsorship deals, you will have signed deals with partners in individual industries. And again, these tend to be on an annual basis. So you might be paid once or twice a year. So your income. Income streams are erratic in the sense of there's not a consistent money coming into the business on a month by month basis, whereas your outflows do tend to be quite constant. The football's a talent industry talent follows the money. The main costs that we see are talent-related in employee remuneration. We have some football clubs who are paying out 200% of income in wages alone. So that's before they put on the floodlights, that's before they mow the grass, that's before they even buy players. They're already operating at significant loss. This means that in terms of cash flow management, it's absolutely critical that you do have a budget, you do try to stick to it. If you're reliant upon owner finance, which given the significant risks of football, especially if we take a look at the step downs in revenue from relegation in the Premier League, if a club like Leeds or Everton was relegated this season, they could see a drop in income of close to £100 million. It means that you have to be very flexible, and certainly the people I speak to in the industry, they operate with two budgets, one on continuing to be in this division and one either based on a step
1: up or a step down, which becomes more and more crystallized as the football season progresses thank you very much and extremely nuanced there with relation to relegation choppy income streams etc so on the outset you wouldn't imagine trade finance receivables and football would cross paths but there are a few links which we're going to draw from in the rest of this podcast so let's talk about the players themselves as you mentioned expensive europe's top five leagues spent nearly a billion pounds completing over 500 deals in this year's january transfer window how is that actually finance? I mean, do we need credit insurance? Are there specific financing facilities that clubs might need to access to facilitate some of these upfront transfer fees? We have seen the credit insurance
0: industry become involved as uh, the volume and the value of individual transfer fees has increased. It is now fairly common that uh, if you do sign a player, that could be spread over three or four annual installments or biannual installments, simply because even if you are owned by wealthy individuals, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have access at a day's notice or a few hours notice to significant funds. You mentioned that uh, the total spending in the European leagues was around about a billion, but Chelsea Football Club itself, spent more money than the Spanish, French, Italian and German leagues put together. So there's a huge concentration of capex as far as player registrations is concerned in the Premier League because it has biggest broadcasting rights. It's uh, the Premier League broadcasting rights are twice those of Italy, Germany and Spain and four times those of France. So the Premier League is a significant advantage. But even so, the clubs themselves do have huge commitments in terms of future payments. So if we take a look at the most recent figures which I have to hand, the Premier League clubs collectively, so we were talking about 20 clubs here, collectively have outstanding payables of £1.8 billion, and they have Collective of receivables of just over 600 million. This reflects the fact that the Premier League, it on the whole, tends to buy from overseas. And we've got clubs, especially in countries like Portugal, which is a major export market of footballing talent, utilizing the market because they don't want IOUs in the finance director's draw. They need cash. It's part of their overall trading model. We see this more and more frequently as far as the football market is concerned. We've got some significant players in the football underwriting market, the likes of Macquarie are very big. Santander sometimes dip their toes in. We did have some niche set-up companies which have appeared to have sort of disappeared off the market. It is now the common way of funding the acquisition in a similar way to any multi-million pounds piece of CapEx, where the commercial banks don't want to touch the business. And the reason why commercial banks are loathe to get involved with the football industry is, as I mentioned to you earlier, it's an industry which potentially has high risk. Whilst the likes of Manchester United, Spurs, Chelsea, Manchester City and so on are actually relatively bulletproof because the chances of them being relegated are zero or close to zero. Some of the clubs I mentioned to you earlier, the likes of Leeds United, Everton, West Ham are not having a good season. We've got Southampton down there as well. Would you be willing to lend to any business as a commercial lender, especially if you're a high street bank, if there was a 30 to 40% chance of that club losing its biggest income stream somewhere over the course of the next six months. And also, the lender itself could suffer reputational damage. Do you want to be the bank manager who closes down West Ham United Football Club, for example? Because many of your customers will be West Ham fans. So if you are that bank, why take on that risk? And that's why we've seen the boutique lenders or the boutique providers of finance enter the
1: industry and provide alternative funding. At a cost, of course, right? Because, you know, these boutique lenders will have to have capital behind them. So actually, the premium you'll be paying on the interest considerably more, right? Yes. I mean, one of the new entrants to the market
0: is MSD Holdings, which is Michael Dell's sort of his private bank, I guess. And that has become significantly involved in football. So a couple of months ago, it's lent around about 20 million to West Bromwich Albion. But if you take look at the Jersey market, I think it's borrowed at 9.25. So then it's got to have its own margin on top. It's certainly not a, a cheap form of funding for a football club. It's a very emotive issue as well, because football fans are tunnel vision and only want to see money spent on players. So if we take a look at the case of Manchester United, since it was acquired by the present owners in an LBO in 2005, it borrowed around about 600 million. It's not managed to repay any of the debt. It did have a listing in New York in uh, in 2012, which partially paid down some debt, but then it's continued to borrow since. It's paid out. Over £900 million on interest on a £600 million loan, and the fans get very angry because they feel the money should be spent on facilities for them. Uh, Old Trafford is a crumbling parody of itself in many regards in terms of the facilities on offer to the regular fans, or should be uh, invested into the talent markets because fans reflect their own lives on the success of the football teams that they support.
1: Kieran, can you talk about the concept of future financing and your favorite word these days is amortization with respect to the buying of players, particularly what we've been seeing with Chelsea?
0: Under the attempts at cost control by the football authorities, and this is both on a on a domestic and a European basis, it's based on a, a break-even model. Therefore, you, you look at your three income streams, broadcast, commercial, and match-day ticket sales, deduct your, your costs. A major cost will be wages, but your second highest cost tends to be um transfer fee amortization. If you sign a football player, let's say for $100 million on a four-year contract, it's one divided by the other, you end up with an amortization cost of $25 million a year don't mark to market because there is no market for individual players. You know, they're trophy assets. They're the equivalent of a work of art and there's no market price for an individual work of art. Therefore, we tend to go down the straight line amortization route. But what we have seen, because lots of people have queried the amount of spending by Chelsea Football Club under their new ownership, is they have said, well, if, if we're just going to use straight line amortization, let's sign the players on gargantuan contracts in terms of the amount of time involved. So we've got players on eight and eight and a half year contracts. So that same 100 million pounds player on an eight-year contract works out as an amortization cost of 12.5 million. You and I both know that from a cash flow point of view, it's a complete irrelevance because it's actually it's the installments which are due in respect of that transfer, which have an impact upon cash flow. But in terms of satisfying the cost control measures, it has allowed Chelsea to spend considerably more money than people would have anticipated and stay within the parameters of the allowable loss model that we have in existence at present. So yes, I did I do cover this in in quite some depth in terms of my analysis and, you know, one of the issues of perhaps using an EBITDA, an EBITDA-based metric adjusted for uh, cash commitments is one which I personally have favour of. The football authorities don't. Yeah, the football authorities have a very simplistic income statement-based assessment model. Getting the word amortisation trending on Twitter is something that I can now carry to my grave with a certain degree of
1: pride with equal amounts of embarrassment as well. Good financial education there, though, of course. I guess going into a bit more detail on that, what about the financing of clubs in in various leagues? I mean, is this, let's call it an accounting trick, in line with UEFA's financial fair play regulations? And what are some of the primary motivations for club investors? I guess the question on on the value, is the club's value the driving force? Or are there other factors like incumbent debt, like we saw with Man United? I think in in terms of funding, you need
0: to split the industry into two elements. At one extreme, we've got the private equity, hedge fund, profit maximization organizations that see football as an extension of the entertainment industry. And as part of that industry, they want it to make as much money as it can. But in their opinion, it's not very good at profit management. If we take, for example, Manchester United. Manchester United claims to have 1.1 billion fans around the world. I think you've got to take with a pinch of salt, but it's certainly as a cultural asset, it is very famous as a sporting brand. So he's got 1.1 billion fans and it generates annual revenues of around about 500 and 550 million. So that's 50 pence per fan per year that's an absolutely appalling return. The new owners and Manchester United, um, the owners are presently open to offers, I think is the politest way of describing it. They have been approached by different organisations, some of whom say, well, if we can convert that 50 pence per fan per year into one pound per fan per year, all of a sudden, we've got a billion pound a year business. We keep reasonable control over, over wage costs. We've got a very lucrative business. You stick that into a DCF model and you get a pretty high price. That's what we have one extreme. At the other extreme, We have individuals Sovereign wealth funds who see football as a trophy asset industry and are more concerned about the soft power, more concerned about the benefits of being able to network for other issues. If I buy Manchester United and I'm a Qatari head of a bank, what better place to to hold some negotiations with potential clients than Old Trafford? You know, in a European match against Barcelona is, is, going, is it going to be happening this week in Manchester, or will be happening this week also in Liverpool and the hosting Real Madrid. We often say that there are certain things that money can't buy and getting in the director's box for a match of that stature. Is probably one of them. We therefore do see some of the clubs where the price is being touted around, not underpinned by traditional valuation methods. You know, if you stick it into a DCF or if you stick it into a comps model, you get relatively low figures. And then you say, well, hold on, what are we doing here? We are effectively buying a trophy asset, you know, Manchester United, the Mona Lisa of the sports business. You are prepared to pay a premium, even though the inherent value of the asset might be substantially lower. There's bits in between. So if we take a look at Chelsea Football Club, for example, that was bought in 2003 by the Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich. Chelsea lost nine hundred thousand pounds a week for 19 years. He bought it for probably I think he bought it for about yeah, 20 million plus took on the debt at the time. It was sold for 2.5 billion by the UK government as a distressed asset when uh, Abramovich had his, his assets frozen. So I think that's indicative of just how interested the markets are, both as from football as a, a profit maximization business, which isn't very good at maximizing profits. And the new owners feel that they can monetize that, they can make the clubs leaner, they can certainly expand the revenue streams. And then there's the alternative to that is that you've got a high profile, ultra high net worth individual or sovereign wealth fund. You already own some iconic assets. We take the Qatari investment authority. It owns part of Sainsbury's. It owns the Shard. It owns part of Canary Wharf. It owns Harrods. But nobody really talks about it in those words. It's just that the Qatari government has just hosted the World Cup. costs somewhere in the region of 200 billion to host for four weeks of attention. If you can buy Manchester United for 5 billion and you then get the attention of the sporting world
1: for, for years upon years,
0: it actually makes it look like a bargain.
1: Yeah, very interesting way of looking at it. I guess more of a kind of strategic investment versus what we're also seeing in the US, right? You know, really trying to move into the UK version of the word football into that space, right? Yes, absolutely. What about the finances used to actually build stadiums? Obviously, you know, you see what's happening in Tottenham, Everton next year, when it comes to projects and export finance or longer term financing? This very much depends on
0: upon perception of risk. In the case of Tottenham Hotspur. People aren't familiar. It's, it's a club which is based in London. Very low risk of relegation. Tottenham were able to go to the external markets. They were able to go to DCM and they raised somewhere in the region. I think six, seven hundred million. And that money's being repaid at between 2.5 and 3.75% interest some of those loans not repayable until 2051. So they've got long-term finance. They have de-risked volatility in terms of interest rates. They've got fixed rate coupons. That's because of the market perception of the business. Similarly, Manchester United, it's got long-term finance. It's got overdraft facilities. But again, we're probably talking somewhere in the region of six to 700 million. When Manchester United was originally acquired by the new owners, DCM was very, very suspicious of the business model and therefore With some PIK loans at 14.25% plus a 2% premium if the club's EBIT targets were not met. So we're practically talking credit card rates. But as the confidence in football as an industry has grown over the course of the last couple of decades, what we have seen is the industry risk for the elite clubs has decreased significantly. And now clubs can borrow at 2% or 3%, and they are seen as pretty much being the safe assets. In the case of Everton, things are slightly more complicated. Everton is not one of the elite clubs. It's not one of the elite six. It avoided relegation last season on the last day of the year. It is presently just above the relegation zone in the English Premier League. So therefore, trying to get individual lenders, corporate lenders to lend under those circumstances is more difficult. And therefore, we move into owner loan and owner funding, which is quite common. Within the football environment, we've got clubs such as uh, historically West Ham were owner-funded after their previous owners, which ironically was an Icelandic bank, that they collapsed when we had the 2008 crash. But in the main, we're not getting external funding. At Leicester, the owners put in a couple of hundred million. Brighton, the owners put in over 300 million. We've got similar at uh, Southampton, Brentford. It is the standard way of, of funding a football club for two reasons. First of all, there is a lot of caution by traditional DCM market in relation to lending to a volatile industry. And secondly, the interest costs can be quite high. If you've got an owner that that wants a trophy asset, then then they don't want uh, money effectively leaking out of the football industry into the financing industry. So therefore, they end up providing finance themselves at either
1: zero interest rates or very low interest rates, which benefits all the parties. Of course, and very interesting, although I'm sure we'll see that change as football as an asset class, and we'll talk about that in, in a bit, might increase as, as a topic, especially as more and more money and valuations increase. i going to ask you a bit of a loaded question now, given that we're seeing what's happening out of Man City, what's alleged to have happening. Given the range of finance facilities now available to clubs, are leagues and associations really doing enough to maintain a fair and competitive market, and what more could they do?
0: Well, Manchester City have been given 115 charges in respect of financial misdeeds by the regulatory authority. This this is more to do with the fact because Manchester City has no debt. So it does seem yeah, on the face of it in Congress to charge a, an, an entity which has no financial risk with financial wrongdoing. But the accusations leveled at Manchester City is effectively that it's inflated revenues and it's used parallel or phantom contracts to incur costs outside of the football club itself. Could the football authorities do more? We all benefit from having more policemen uh, in order to prevent crime. So then, then it becomes a resource issue, a funding issue, but also a cultural issue. Football is not a logical industry. There's an awful lot of rivalry. There's an awful lot of ego in the industry itself. And there's an awful lot of jealousy of new money. And Manchester City are seen as one of the newly moneyed clubs that they were acquired by Sheikh Mansour in about 2008, 2009. They have won the Premier League four occasions out of the last five. And they now break even, but they have close links in terms of many sponsor and commercial deals with the owners back in Abu Dhabi. Have they done wrongdoing? I don't know. I've not not seen the evidence, so it would be inappropriate to comment. There's something in football called financial fair play, and there's also rules called profitability and sustainability, which which seems very strange. As soon as you start to delve into the small print, there's nothing fair about financial fair play, and profitability and sustainability encourages neither profitability nor sustainability. They appear to be box-ticking exercise with the aim, of preventing any club which is subject to a new ownership regime from investing significant funds into that football club in order to accelerate it in terms of on-field success and winning trophies. The rules are there for a reason, but the reason isn't that of financial prudence. We've got the second tier of English football, the EFL Championship, where again, these rules exist. And yet last season, wages averaged 120% of revenue and wages have exceeded revenue in 11 years out of the last 12. And on the the 12th occasion, it was £99 in wages for every £100 worth of revenue. If the rules are there to encourage sustainability, then they are significantly flawed. And you have to perhaps investigate further motivations
1: behind the way that the rules are A, B being devised and B, being regulated. Thank you very much, Kieran. And one final question. I always like to ask a tech question on my podcast. Would you say there are any cases for new technology and club financings? And I'm talking digital assets via non-fungible tokens, NFTs or blockchain for merchandising, etc. We are seeing football clubs get into bed with a variety
0: of new digital asset companies. The likes of Liverpool, Arsenal, Paris Saint-Germain, and indeed the Premier League itself are trying to create a set of digital assets, NFTs. There's also one club in the fourth tier of English football called Crawley Town, which has been acquired by effectively a crypto company. They are trying to make Crawley Town the crypto club and to attract interest from a variety of geographical locations to people who wouldn't necessarily engage. It does have a degree of logic. In the sense that if Manchester United has a billion fans around the world and it's based in Manchester, England, and has a capacity of seventy-five thousand for its stadium, clearly one point one billion doesn't go into seventy-five thousand. There is a case. For saying, well, this is a, a way of encouraging engagement. My reservation with NFTs is that ultimately it's an unregulated, highly volatile, and easily manipulated market, and it can be therefore used nefariously by clubs in terms of their objectives. It's already a very expensive business being a football fan. If you've got a season ticket, if you're travelling home and away, if you're buying merchandise, if you're if you're forced to buy the the prices charged by the clubs for the catering and other goods and services in the ground itself, and also the benefits of NFTs tend themselves to be very peripheral. You know, choosing things such as the colors of the corner flags or next season's away kit does seem fairly trivial. But ultimately, if that's what people want to buy and they're willing to buy, then that's got to be a personal choice. It's my concern is always when these things are marketed as an investment opportunity. And once part of me says, well, let the buyer beware, if you're going to take an investment advice from John Terry or Michael Owen, then frankly, I've got little sympathy for you. But we are using football celebrity as as a means of trying
1: to sell some of these products. and, And that's why I personally feel very uneasy. Thank you very much. Kieran, and I want to thank you for joining on this somewhat different podcast. I think we could safely say that trade and receivables finance certainly does have quite a role to play in the game of football, from purchasing and the running of clubs in the league, using receivables finance and the transfer of players, the use of credit insurance, project and export finance facilities, and you've also touched on the use cases for potential technologies in in opening up football as an asset class, although very cautious approach there. I'd also like to uh, give one final shout out to SWIFT or scousers working in the financing of trade who I'm sure will be delighted to hear your voice when we publish this podcast. Kieran, thank you so much for joining us on Trade Finance Talks. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for the invite. Take care, everybody.
0: Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com.